So the big news in uh, the world today is that apparently uh, Bibi Netanyahu met with Elon Musk and they were discussing artificial intelligence, the future of artificial intelligence. And I was discussing this with a friend of mine today, a friend of mine who is uh, a shliach in Eretz Israel, in the Holy Land, he, and he's originally from Israel, he's an Israeli, and he taught me a word that I didn't know. I bet Avi knows this word. You know how to say artificial intelligence in Hebrew? Very good, very good. Bina melachatit, which means manufactured or artificial or made up intelligence. But it's very interesting to me that they chose to use the word bina, which is a Kabbalistic term and a Hasidic term. And it has very specific meaning in spiritual teachings of Judaism. Bina is specifically elaborative thought. Bina is related to the word bona, which means to build. Like when you take an idea and you build on it. That's why bina is like associative thought. When we do meditation, discursive meditation, in Hasidic meditative practices, it's called hisbeninus, or hitbonanut, has that same root word, which means to take one idea and to build on it. You know, like a stream of consciousness, free association, you take one idea, let's say you take the idea like uh, the infinity of, of God, and then you take that idea and you think about it and it leads you from one thought to another thought. That's why Bina is generally described as hameven dover mitoich dover, one who understands or discerns, that's probably a better translation, one thing from another thing. In other words, there are people who know what you tell them, and then there are people who can figure out, they can extrapolate more than what you told them. And that's koya That's the capacity for creative, elaborative, expansive thought. So it's interesting. I don't know if they did this on purpose when they made up the term, but artificial intelligence is really good at bina. It, it really is, because you can feed it one word or one phrase and it can put together a whole string of semi-sensical associations and just flow. I mean, like, the, 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 the AI is very good at uh, stringing together words or sentences that sound like they have what to do with each other, and it sounds very authoritative, until you ask it about something that you have knowledge in. If I ask it about something that I have no expertise in, it fools me. It definitely... It's uh, very good at that. It would be very good at cocktail parties. But if you ask it about something you actually know about, you see it's really good at flowing, but sometimes just for the sake of the flow, it'll throw in something that's not even, not even factually true. Okay, so, which is fine, because that's more chokhmah. Chokhmah is the information. And bina is how you build it, how you put it together. And so it's a really good term, actually, the bina melochatit, which is artificial elaborative thought, and it's really good at elaborative thought. What's interesting to me is the one thing that AI cannot do, and this is the big discussion, will it ever be able to do, is what? Self-awareness. Can it become conscious of its own existence? So some say, by definition, it will never be able to do it. Others say, it surely can't yet, but 
watch out when it happens. But the point is that artificial bina is the bina for everything but itself. And why am I thinking about this right now? Because tonight's topic, I forgot exactly how we wrote it up, but what was it? Uh, Self-reflection? What did we call it? What was the official title that went out? Called it self-reflection? The art of self-reflection. Yeah. So the art of self-reflection is really applying one's bina, one's capacity for elaborative thought, creative, extrapolating thought, to your own self-concept. In other words, we all have a certain limited self-image. By definition, we're, we have limited minds, so we know only what we know. Um, and to have a full picture of ourselves, you have to use your Bina. In, in other words, Bina fills things in. Bina fleshes things out. So I take what I know, and I build on that, and I can build a fuller picture. So a self-concept would be I take whatever data that I have, and with Bina, I could, fi I could fill it in and create a more accurate, a more full self-concept, and, and, and that's what self-reflection really is. So it's interesting that that's what artificial intelligence uh, cannot do, even though it's incredibly good with Bina, with everything else, but that's what we have to do, and specifically now, during Aseris Yimei during the 10 days of return, the, the days between Rosh Hashanah, where we just crowned Hashem as our king, and Yom Kippur, which is the day of cleansing, atonement. So this is really the time when we have to do Teshuvah, which means to return to our essence. And how are you supposed to return to your essence if you don't know what your essence is? So self-reflection is super important. And having a clear picture of yourself is going to be of the essence at this time of year. So that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about how do we get a clear picture of ourselves I also want to explain a little bit more why getting a clear picture of yourself is essential to Teshuvah, to return or reinstatement and going back to the source. Um, so I, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll start with a story. Can't go wrong with a story. The story is like this, and it's the kind of story that I like to tell. You know what kind of stories I like to tell? Okay, some of you haven't been here before, some of you have. Okay, Simcha's smiling, he knows. I like to tell stories that um, are not exciting, not dramatic, and have a very ambiguous ending where you're not even sure I finished. That is correct. And this one's great because there's no action. If it's like, my dinner with Andre, just dialogue, that's extra points in my book. So the story is like this. A chassid went to the Rebbe Marash, that was the fourth Chabad Rebbe. And... Uh, he told him about his spiritual issues, whatever it was he was struggling with. And the Rebbe Marash said to him, this is in Lubavitch, in the town of Lubavitch. The Rebbe Marash said to him that his prescription to fix his spiritual issues is 600 fasts. So the guy was kind of taken aback. I don't know if he was used to fasting, and certainly he never really contemplated something like 600 fasts. And his reaction showed that he was a little bit taken aback. So the Rebbe Marash said to him, what do you think fasting means? Not eating? That's called dieting. 
Fasting doesn't mean not eating. Fasting means every day you think about yourself for 15 minutes. That's the story. That's the whole story. The guy comes in with spiritual problems. The Rebbe Marash says to him, what do you got to do? 600 fasts. Oh, what do you think fasting is? Not eating? That's called dieting. Fasting means every day think about yourself for 15 minutes. And that's what he told him to do. That's what the guy did. And since we don't know the rest of the story, presumably it worked out. The first time. You want to grow spiritually, you have to have an accurate picture of yourself. And it's going to take time. You're going to have to think about yourself for a sustained period of time. And it's going to take repetition. You're going to have to do that more than one time. Do it hundreds of times. Do it regularly. Make it part of your regimen. Think about yourself. Who are you? Who are you? How are you supposed to be the best you that you could be if you have no concept of who you are? Or who you could be? And it, it, it's funny because you would think maybe in that story that Ebba Marash would have told him, first of all, it's a curveball that he told him fasting doesn't mean literally not eating. But even if you say it means 15 minutes of meditation a day, it's interesting. Why didn't Rebbe Marash tell him 15 minutes to think about God? You open up every Hasidic book, and it's about meditation after meditation on the greatness of God. But that's not what he told him. He told him 15 minutes a day, think about yourself. What's up with that? Why? Why think about yourself? And why was that the remedy? Why was that the cure to all of his issues? I saw a little, like, short video recently from uh, somebody who I only became aware of very recently, but I find him very inspiring. Uh, he's a guy, and some of you may know him, others may not, uh, named David Goggins. You heard of him? Okay, well, when you Google him tonight, then the algorithm will know that you like him, and then He'll be all over your YouTube and social media. I'll just read to you the first paragraph from his Wikipedia. This is one of the papers that I brought up with me. David Goggins, born February 17, 1975, so he's younger than me. So I was born in 74. Is an American retired United States Navy SEAL, ultramarathon runner, ultra-distance cyclist, triathlete, public speaker, and author of two memoirs, who was inducted into the International Sports Hall of Fame for his achievements in sport. And there's some other things here, like he holds the Guinness World Record for most pull-ups in one day. Forget how many it was, like 20,000, some ridiculous number, pull-ups in a day. And he says, David Goggins. He's an interesting guy. You watch videos of him. He's, a, he's, a, he's got a very colorful way of speaking. He, he swears like a sailor, which is a good thing that he's a Navy SEAL, because I guess he actually is a sailor. But uh, he's like a real rough guy. He doesn't, doesn't mince words. So anyways... I saw this interview with him, and the interviewer asked him, I mean, he's a fascinating guy because, like I said, he, he holds the world's record in, in pull-ups, and he's an ultra-distance runner. That's not just, you know, marathon is 26, whatever, point miles. Um, he, he ran like 100 miles. He ran a relay race, and he was the only member of his team. So, like, really crazy stuff. But what's inspiring about him is that 
until his 20s, he was, he was overweight. He weighed 300 pounds. He was working as an exterminator. He was spraying for, for cockroaches in people's uh, apartments. That was his job. Every night, he, he hated his job, so every night he would go and buy a milkshake and a dozen donuts, and that was, that was his only pleasure in life. And that's, uh, you know, that's how he could have lived the rest of his life. But he had this wake-up call, and he decided that he's not going to waste his life. And he came from a very difficult background. He had an abusive father, and his father gave him a, a terrible self-image, and he faced all types of challenges. At any rate, so somebody, so he's an interesting guy. I find him very interesting. So the interviewer says to David Goggins, what's your greatest fear? Because he's so fearless. Like, he does crazy stuff. He was running on a broken foot. He ran, like, in the middle of a marathon, he broke his foot and just kept running on it. He's a fearless guy. So the interviewer says to David Goggins, what's your greatest fear? So he thinks for half a second. He says, my greatest fear? He says, you believe in God? He says, I don't care. Actually, it doesn't matter if you believe in God. Just imagine I die and I go up before God. He says, imagine. He says, imagine I die. I'm 75 years old. I'm a 300-pound exterminator spraying for cockroaches. And I go up and I'm standing in line and I'm waiting for my turn in front of God. And I tell him my name. I say, I'm David Goggins. And God pulls my file and he looks it up. And he says, David Goggins, Navy SEAL, ultramarathon runner, world pull-up record, motivational speaker, best-selling author. And I say to him, mm, you got the wrong guy. I'm a 300-pound exterminator sprays for cockroaches. That's not me. And God says to me, no, it's not you. It's who you could have been. David Goggins says, that's my greatest fear, that I would get up before God and find out who I was supposed to be. Now, I heard that story, and of course, all truths are, what do they say? That uh, only lies are original, but truths are all plagiarized. So it's an old story. I don't think he heard the old stories. I think he just was saying his feelings from his heart. But it's an old story, and it depends if you're, Chassidish or Litvish, which old story you want to quote? I'll, I'll quote the Chassidish one because that's the one I knew first. But they say that when Rebzushia, Rebzushia was one of the Talmidi Magid, one of the students of the great Magid. He was a great tzaddik. And uh, he lived a life of complete holiness, purity. And on his deathbed, he was crying. And his students were standing around him. They said, Rebbe, why are you crying? He said, I'm afraid of judgment. So they asked Rebzushia, why are you afraid of judgment? I mean, you lived a perfect life so holy, so pure. And if you're afraid of judgment, it doesn't bode very well for the rest of us. So Abzushia says to his, uh, his students, he says, my dear children, do not think that I'm afraid that I will get up there and the heavenly court will review my life and say to me, Zushia, why weren't you like Avramovino, like Abraham, our patriarch? Do not think I'm afraid I'll get up there, they'll review my life, and they'll say to me, Zushia, why weren't you like Meshurabeno, like, like our teacher Moses? I'm terrified I'll get up there, they'll review my life, and they'll say to me, Zusha, why weren't you like Zusha? So if you're Litvish, the story you, you probably know is about the Nitziv. Similar story. A little bit different details, but the same punchline. So the, the, the Nitziv was the, 
Voloshin Rosh Hashiva. He had 10,000 Talmudim, 10,000 students. And he wrote Svadim, rabbinic treatises, books, scholarly works that are still studied to this day. Incredible genius and leader. So uh, on one particular occasion, the Nitziv had just published one of his works, and he made a, a celebration with the other Rabbanim, with the other rabbinic leaders. And he spoke, and he said, I want to share with everybody a personal story. He says, when I was a kid, I was not a good student. I did not apply myself. And uh, I was 11 years old, and I came home from Cheder, where I was not a good student. And instead of walking through the door, I actually stood out on the porch for a moment, and I heard my mother and father speaking, and they were speaking about me. And my father said to my mother, you know, Naftali, he's not so much of a learner. And... He needs to, he needs, he's going to need to have some type of a skill if he's going to make a living. I'm really thinking after his bar mitzvah, we should pull him out of yeshiva and we should get him an apprenticeship. I know a shoemaker that'll let him work in the shoemaker shop and Naftali will learn uh, shoemaking. So the Nativ says, I overheard that and uh, he said it lit a fire under me. And from that day on, I took myself more seriously. And I became a more uh, devoted student. And you see what became of me in the end. So he says, you know, imagine, imagine if I hadn't been standing there on the other side of that door. Imagine if that conversation would have taken place, but I didn't know about it. And on the day of my bar mitzvah, my, my parents would have said to me, Mazatov, and now it's time to move on from yeshiva. Now it's time you're going to go apprentice by a shoemaker. And I would never have known that this was a discussion. I would have never known what the alternatives were. I would just be taken to the shoemaker. And he says, and I want to tell you something. I believe I would have been a darn good shoemaker. I would have been a good shoemaker. And uh, I would have lived a life. And after I grew uh, gray and old, I would pass away. And I would come up to the heavenly court and they would say, Naftali, show us your wares, show us your accomplishments. And I would proudly produce my best pair of shoes, which I had cobbled, and I would say, here, here they are. And they would say to me, but where are all of your svarim, your rabbinic scholarly books? Where are your 10,000 students of the yeshiva? And I would say, you got the wrong guy, I'm just a shoemaker. And they would say, Naftali, you are a shoemaker, but you are supposed to be the Nitziv. The idea I'm trying to bring across, is, as I, as I said earlier, how are we supposed to do teshuva? How are we supposed to mend our ways? How are we supposed to improve if we don't have an inkling of who we are and who we're supposed to be? In fact, let me, let me state it a little bit more pointedly. Everybody can figure out that certain things they're doing are wrong, and they should stop doing those things. Okay. And you could do teshuva, presumably, for those things that you know you're doing that you shouldn't be doing. You can stop doing things that are wrong. But how in the world does a person do teshuva 
for the good things they're not doing that they don't even know they're not doing because they never dreamt that they were capable of them. How do you do teshuva for a thing like that? So if you don't know who you really are, if you don't have a picture of who you really are, you can't even do teshuva. Teshuva means return. Return to what? Your true self. How do you return to your true self without some semblance, without some inkling of a picture of your true self? When I say true self, I mean the soul. And you're going to say, well, who has a picture of a soul? So I want to talk to you about how to get a snapshot of your soul so that you can really begin living up to who you are. You know, when Aaron Akain, Aaron the high priest, Meshach Rabbeinu's brother, Moses' brother, when he passed away in the 40th year of the Jewish people wandering in the wilderness, it says that everyone was crying over him, the men and the women. It doesn't say that about Moses, it says it about Aaron. So uh, the commentaries, primarily Rashi, explain based on uh, a Midrashic teaching that Aaron was particularly popular because, like it says in Pirkeovis, he was Oyev Shalom, of Shalom, he loved peace. He pursued peace. He loved people who had no redeeming qualities other than the fact that they were created by God. And he would bring them close to, to Hashem's Torah. And we know actually his methodology, how he used to do that. Um, and Moses had his own path. Moses was the one who received the Torah and, and faithfully transmitted it. He was the lawgiver, the teacher. That was his path. He had a different avayda. He had a different way of serving. But Aaron's way was he was a diplomat. He used to make peace. And specifically, the method that he used to use was when two people were fighting, two brothers, two business partners, two neighbors, a husband and a wife, whatever it might be, he would go to one of them and say, you know, the other one is really ashamed and he wants to apologize, but he can't look you in the eye. And then he would go to the other party and he would say the same thing. And somehow, remarkably, he never got caught. It always worked. And everyone would make peace. And maybe by the time they figured out what had happened, they didn't care anymore because they had made peace and they were enjoying being at peace. And that's why everybody cried, the men and the women. Whole families cried because... So many of them owed their shalom bias, the peace in their home, to Aaron because he was the peacemaker. Now, Moses couldn't do that because Moshe was about truth. So sometimes truth is a little bit blunt. And he couldn't massage things to broker a deal, right? Aaron was about love. So sometimes he would say things a little bit more euphemistically. He'd clean things up in order to sell the deal. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe speaks about this, and he asks a question. At the end of the day, what are we really saying? We're saying that the popularity of Aaron Akain was that he had the ability or willingness to twist the truth, 
which Moshe Rabbeinu, his brother Moses, did not possess. That's his great praise. That, to put it bluntly, he was a good liar. For a good reason, for a good cause, but he was a good liar. So the Rebbe's not very happy with that explanation. So the Rebbe says like this. That's not what happened. I mean, what happened is what happened, but you have to look more deeply into the mechanics of what was actually happening. Yeah, Aaron would go to one party and say, the other guy wants to make up with you, and he would do the reverse. This guy wants to make up with you. But you have to analyze it on a deeper level. How did that work? You see, Aaron had a unique capacity because he loved you, he loved you, to see the real you, which means your soul. He saw your neshama. And your neshama is not fighting with anyone. Your ego is fighting with people. Your ego feels threatened. Your ego is living with a scarcity mentality. Your ego wants revenge to settle the score, to retaliate. Your ego holds a grudge. Your soul's at one with all your brothers and sisters, and it just wants to be in loving, peaceful unity with everyone. So Aaron would see you fighting, and he would know that's not the real you. That's not the real you. And he would look more deeply, and he would see your soul, and he would see how you're at peace with the person you're fighting with. And he would go to the person you're fighting with, and he would report that truth, that deeper truth. He would say, he really wants to make up with you. Because it's true, deep down, you did want to make up with the guy you're fighting with. Your ego doesn't want, but the ego's not the real you. The soul is the real you, and the soul wants peace. And then he would go and he would say the same thing to the other guy. He wants to make up with you. And what does he mean, he? The real him, his soul. So the way that it worked was that Aaron was capable of not being fooled by your lower self, even when you were acting on your lower, lower self and engaging your lower self by fighting with others, but Aaron would look through it. He'd look past it and see the real you, and he would believe in that more than the behaviors that you were communicating, and he would report that truth, and he would bring it out until it became the external reality as well, until your behaviors, your outer self became aligned with your inner true self. And that, the Rebbe says, is why people especially mourned the passing of Aaron. Not because he was popular because he made peace. Yeah, that too. But the real reason they mourned him is because when he passed away, they were afraid not only they had lost a great man who they loved and respected and admired, they were afraid they had lost access to their true selves. Because who will ever see the real me again? I could never fool Aaron. Aaron was always able to see through my shtick and, and perceive the godliness that's always there. And if I don't have Aaron in my life, how will I see me? How, I, how will I see my true self? So the Nebuchadnezzar says this is the function of Aaron and of the Aaron-like figure in every generation. The tzaddik who teaches us how to love each other and how to love ourselves by seeing the truth about ourselves and others, that we are souls. So we need a clear self-image. We need a clear snapshot of the soul.
Where are we supposed to get a thing like that? You have to go to Aaron. You have to go to a spiritual giant who knows how to see souls. I mentioned earlier that Ebe Marash, I'll tell you another story of that Ebe Marash, and maybe the two stories are related. Rebbe Marash used to spend a lot of time with simple Jews. People who were not scholars, who didn't particularly outwardly possess any special qualities. And there was this one chassid, his name was Reb Monya, and he was, a, he was a diamond merchant and he was also a, a scholar and a, a refined individual. And once in a private audience with the, with the Rebbe Marash, he let his curiosity sort of be revealed. And he, he said something that normally a chassid doesn't say to a Rebbe. But he, he questioned, he said, why does the Rebbe spend so much time with people who don't appear so impressive? <laughs> so, so the Rebbe said to Rebbe he said, you're a diamond merchant. He says, yeah. He says, you have any diamonds on you? He says, I happen to, yes. He says, you mind showing me? Sure. So he puts out some diamonds on the table. Then Rebbe Maharash says, tell me about them. He says, well, this one's a particularly fine one, and this one has this quality, and that one, oh, this one is very rare. And then Rebbe Maharash says, you know, I just don't see it. To me, they're all, I mean, they're nice, but they're, they're just all diamonds. I don't really see what's special about any of that. So, Amunya says, Rebbe, to appreciate what's special about a diamond, you have to be a maven. A maven, it's related to the word we were talking about earlier. Maven is from that word bina. To understand, to discern, to know more than just the information that's presented to you. To understand how to make Connections, associations, this piece of information leads to another piece of information. They have a full picture. So he said, Rebbe, you have to be a maven to really appreciate a diamond. If you be a maven, then you'll know what a, uh, what a good diamond is. So the Rebbe Marash says to Ramonia, Ah, to appreciate a Jew, you have to be a maven. In other words, he was telling this this chassid, you're coming to me and asking me, what do I see? What qualities do I see in these people? You don't see what I see. <laughs> Maybe you're not capable of seeing it. Maybe you don't have that level of bina. But a tzaddik has that bina. And a tzaddik is a maven. And specifically a maven in what? In Jews. The tzaddik knows how to see what's special and precious and beautiful about each one of us. You know the story about the Hillel rabbi from the University of Manitoba. He brought a group of college kids to the Rebbe. And one of them, I'm saying to the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the 7th Rebbe, on, on 770, in 770 Eastern Parkway. They came to a Yechidus, a group Yechidus in Crown Heights. And uh, one of the kids, you know, college kids, they, they can be uh, a little bit uh, impolite. So one of them said to the Rebbe, what's a Rebbe good for anyway? 
And the rabbi who brought them was mortified. He said he wanted to dig a hole and jump in the, in the ground. But uh, the rabbi took it very much in, in, in stride. And he said, uh, well, I can't talk about myself, but I can tell you about my rabbi, my father-in-law. I can tell you my father-in-law was a soul geologist. And that's a Rebbe. A Rebbe is a soul geologist. So you ask, what's a soul geologist? Well, what's a geologist? Geologists, primarily, who do they work for? Mining companies. Because there's a great amount of wealth, natural resources, in the ground. But it's not everywhere. You've got to know what you're digging for and where to dig. For that, you hire a geologist, and they tell you, there's the diamonds, there's the sapphire, there's the rubies. Dig this deep. Dig over there. Dig here. So that's a geologist. The Rebbe said, every one of us possesses treasures. But they're not always exposed. In fact, we might not even know they exist. For that, you got to go to a soul geologist. A soul geologist sees what's hidden. He sees the treasure within. And he tells you what you're digging for and where to dig. That's a Rebbe. There's a letter that uh, the Rebbe wrote during a Sesame Tshuva. Tovshin Gimel. So the last months of 1942. The letter was written to the yeshiva in Montreal. And it was addressed to the Tmimim. The Lubavitcher Yeshiva that was started in the town of Lubavitch is called Teimche Tamimim, and the students are called Tamimim. That's plural, Tamimim. Singular is Tomim. And Tomim literally means a complete or an intact person. Tamimim is the plural of that. So, what does it mean to be complete or intact or whole? And the Rebbe is writing them, remember, it's a Sesame Chuva, it's the days of return. And he's writing to them about the theme of teshuva, about the theme of return. And they are tamimim, they're members of the yeshiva whose students are called tamimim. And the Rebbe is describing what it means to return to Hashem as a tomim, to become whole, to become intact. So the Rebbe says, you know, there are 613 mitzvahs, which correspond to 248 limbs and 365 sinews. And in order to be a complete person, we have to connect to all of those mitzvahs. 248 positive, 365 negative. And if, God forbid, a person fails to do what he should do or he does do what he shouldn't do, then he lacks that part of himself. And he becomes, God forbid, defective. Like he's missing a piece of himself. And teshuva is the state of becoming whole again, of becoming tomim again. So how do you become tomim? So the Rebbe says the good news is the Gemara tells us in Yuma that G'dayla Tshuva, great is penitence or return, it brings healing to the world. So even if you're missing a part of you, you didn't do a mitzvah or you, God forbid, you transgressed a prohibition, but you can get healed and then you become intact again. Then the Rebbe says, but here's the thing. There's a, there's a discussion actually in the in uh, Ksubais, which talks about marriage contracts, matrimony. It says, what if a man 
betrothes a woman. And the Rebbe's writing to Yeshiva Bachram, so he's writing in uh, terms that they relate to. He's talking about the, about the Talmudic discussions that they're studying. So he says, there's a scenario, the Gemara, the Talmud says, a man betrothes a woman on a condition that she is healthy, that she has no illness. But it, in fact, she is ill at the time of the betrothal. However, later she goes and she gets healed by a doctor. What is the ruling? She is not betrothed. Because although she is now healed, at the time of the betrothal, she was not yet healed. That's the first case. The second case, juxtaposed to that case, in the Gemara Suba says, um, there's a man who betrothes a woman on condition that she has no vows binding upon her, meaning she never took on any vows that would obligate her. But she did have, in fact, vows. However, afterwards, she went to a chacham. A chacham means a wise man. And there's a procedure known as hatoras nedarim, where the chacham, the wise man, is able to be mater neder, to release the vow. In that case, she is retroactively betrothed because although a doctor only heals from the present and onward, when a chacham releases or annuls a vow, its effect is retroactively, and it is as, it is as if the vow never existed. So even though the betrothal took place in the past, it's fine, the vow is also uprooted from the past, and it's an effective betrothal. So the Rebbe says, this corresponds to two levels of teshuva. And they're both great. They're both teshuva. But there's one level that's higher than the other. One level is like refuah. It's like going to a reifah, going to a doctor. And that's indeed what the Gemara says. The daily tshuva, mevia refuah la'ilam. Tshuva brings healing. But that only works from now on. In other words, what you did in the past is still a sin. It still caused damage to yourself, to the universe. But... It's been expunged, meaning as far as reward and punishment, you're not going to get punished for it. Clean slate, move on. Yeah, you have a clean slate, but the damage was still done. You know, you, 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 you crash your parents' car. They can decide to forgive you. They can even decide that uh, they're not going to mention it to you ever again. They can get over it. But you still you see the car. You crash the car. Every time you go in the garage, you see, you see the dent. You can't change the past. Past is the past. The damage is done. So that's one level of teshuva. That's the regular level of teshuva. But then there's a higher level of teshuva. And that is when you go to the chacham. And the chacham is mater nader. And that works even lemafreya, even retroactively, that it's as if it never existed. That is what the Talmud describes as the level of teshuva of return, where zdoinus nasale kezachias where past sins become like merits. Not just that the past sins are expunged. No, they become converted and transformed to positivity. Now, how is that possible? The Alter Rebbe explains it in Tanya in chapter 7. He explains it psychologically, rather simply. 
he says that there's a kind of a teshuva that the, the, the Gemara calls teshuva ma'ava, teshuva that's done out of love, where it's not that I stopped sinning because I'm afraid of punishment or because I want to get a reward, but I stopped doing what I was doing because of my love for Hashem and how I cherish the relationship and I rue anything that would disrupt the relationship. Not about me. It's not about reward and punishment. It's not about my, my reputation. It's not about the, the, the records that they're keeping. I mean, it, it's just, even if there would be no consequence, in fact, it, 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 at the first level of tshuva, there are no more consequences because everything got expunged. But it still hurts me to know that there was this damage in the past and I wish I could make it go away. So that is called tshuva ma'ava, the tshuva that comes out of love. And the Al-Tarebbe says that in that case, it's the person's estrangement from God that spurs them on to a higher level, a more intense level of desire for God now. He, just, he, he compares it metaphorically to a person in a desert. That a glass of water never tasted like it tastes until you're in a parched desert. And there you have a glass of water. It's a whole new world. So when a person is estranged from godliness, godliness and then he yearns to reinstate the relationship, that closeness or the desire for that closeness is far more intense than the regular desire that we have for a relationship with Hashem. And it leads to a greater vigilance and meticulousness and care like a person who knows what's at stake. He knows what there is to lose because he's lost it and he's never going to lose it again. So it leads to a higher level of sensitivity. Ironically, that his sin actually, after the fact, brings him to a higher level of sensitivity. Not that you're allowed to go out and do that, by the way, because anyone who says, I'll sin and then repent, it's not going to work out so well for you. So you're not allowed to purposely sin so that you can you know, fight in order to kiss and make up. But... The reality is, if it happens, then yeah, the tshuva ma'ava transforms the past sins into merits. That, Rebbe says, is what happens when you go to the chocham and he's mater nether, when you go to the wise man and he annuls the vow, he takes the thing from the past and changes it, he transforms it. Not like the doctor who can heal the illness from now on, but he actually takes the thing that was hanging on you, that was heavy, and he, and he, turns, it into, he turns it into a treasure. So the Rebbe says, and this is the Rebbe writing, like I said, I said the year, you heard what I said, Tavshin Gimel, last few months of 1942. So this is when the Rebbe was working in the secretariat of his father-in-law. And the Rebbe tells them, this is what happens when you connect to my father-in-law. My father-in-law is the Chochem, the Tzaddik, the wise man. And when you have a relationship with him, he facilitates the higher level of Teshuvah, the Teshuvah out of love where past sins not only become expunged, but they become transformed. They become your spiritual assets. And how is that possible? Why is that possible? What are the mechanics of that? 
tell me, tell me what's, how is a relationship with a tzaddik or a chacham conducive to or tantamount to a level of return that changes my negative past into assets? But don't you get it? It's one and the same concept. The chacham is the one who sees the real me. Like Aaron would see the real me. Like Like when the Rebbe Marash said, for a Jew, you have to be a maven. You have to know what you're looking at. The tzaddik knows what he's looking at. In fact, the chachamim are called enei ha'eda, the eyes of the congregation. They know how to see things. So you check in with the tzaddik, and the tzaddik gives you, or lends you his eyes for a moment, so that you can have your, his concept of you installed, at least for a moment, at least for a fleeting glimpse, becomes installed as your self-concept. And when you see yourself for even a moment the way the tzaddik sees you, then you see the godliness in you, and you love the godliness in you. You love God. You love yourself. You return out of love. And then the past is transformed. So we all need... It could happen. It could happen. You could luck out. You could luck out, and maybe you'll have a wake-up call, and you'll start taking yourself more seriously. Maybe if you're lucky, I, but I don't know how to promise to produce that. Or if you would like to reliably have the higher level of teshuva, teshuva out of love, teshuva that's based on proper self-love, healthy self-esteem, where you love your godliness, you love the purity of, of your true core self, your soul. For that, you need to check in with somebody who knows how to see that in you. So the doctor, he says, what are your symptoms? Oh, I have a medicine for that. I'll clear that up. The Chochem gives you his eyes. He gives you a snapshot of your truth for a second. And then everything becomes completely new, even retroactively your past. Okay, so there's a story that I told a lot of times recently, but I'm going to tell it again. And the story is that uh, there was a 14-year-old kid <laughs> on a small island in the, Carib in the Caribbean, in the Netherlands, in Tilly's in the small Jewish community. The island is called Curaçao, and it actually it's historically significant because the oldest still-in-use synagogue in the Western Hemisphere is in Curaçao. Um, it was built, it's called the Mikveh Israel Emanuel Synagogue. It was built by Dutch Sephardim in the 1600s. But uh, other than history, it didn't have much of a robust Jewish population. From what I understand, most of the people who even davened would go to synagogue Shabbos morning and then go to work. So it wasn't a particularly thriving Jewish community. Um, and the Jews pretty much just would send their kids to the, the only options for school there, which were non-Jewish options. And they were mostly left alone. It was understood to not bother the kids during prayer time. They were religious schools. 
But uh, during prayer times, the Jewish kids were basically allowed to not participate. And then one day, there was this new principal, and for whatever reason, he just got obsessed with the idea he's going to make the Jewish kids to toe the line, and they have to do everything like everybody else. And uh, there was this one Jewish kid who, he wasn't going to do it. So the principal started harassing him and even sort of orchestrating this concerted effort for the other kids to bully him. And it became unlivable. The 14-year-old the, the kid couldn't live with it. So would you blame him? He just stopped going to school. And one day, his uh, father gets a call. Why is your kid not coming to school? He says, it's not true. My kid does go to school every day. I drop him off. You drop him off? Well, he doesn't come into school because he hasn't been here in two weeks. So the father went to pick the kid up from school. He says, how was school today? The kid said, it was great. He says, you haven't been in school in two weeks. I know it. So the kid says, what do you want from me? This principal is crazy. He's harassing me. He's getting other kids to bully me. And they're anti-Semites. I, I, can't, I can't give in to it. So the father says, okay, you're not going to go to school? Then you got to come to work with me. And he said it as a bluff. <laughs> the kid called this bluff. He said, okay, I'm coming to work. So now the father had to do it. So the kid starts working, 14-year-old kid. 14-year-olds are not supposed to be working. So the authorities were upset about this. Then the Jewish community got upset because it's like, well, you're making pressure for us. You're making us look bad. Just go along. Just don't make trouble, right? Unfortunately, the Jewish attitude in exile very much is like, you know, go with the flow. Um, so now they're getting pressure from the non-Jewish authorities. They're getting pressure from the Jewish community. And I want to tell you something. As a father, I can tell you this. When we go through our own troubles, that's one thing. But when your child is going through troubles, you can't live. You can't live. When your child is suffering, it's just, it's unbearable. And the father of this 14-year-old boy, he was beside himself, understandably. And he didn't know what to do. He had no, he, he had no idea how he's going to resolve this situation. He goes to sleep, very distraught, and he has a dream. And in the dream, he sees himself as a little kid, as a toddler. And he's sitting in the lap of his grandmother, who's already in Eilamo Emes, who already passed on to the world of truth, Bobby Bela. And Bobby Bela is speaking to him in Russian. And she's saying to him, to the father, my love, if you're ever in trouble, ask the Lubavitcher Rebbe to help you. This dream was the first time that he had heard of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He wakes up, he's not sure what to do with this dream. He goes to the synagogue, he asks the custodian, open up the ark for me. They open the ark, he opens the ark. He, he, you know, this is what Bobby Bayless said to do in the dream. He just did it. He said, Lubavitcher help me. Now, let me cut to another story. We'll get back to this story. Now we're in Brooklyn, very far away from uh, Curacao. We're on Crown Street, to be exact. And uh, the phone rings, three in the morning, and uh, Moshe Kotlarski, may he be well, answers the phone. And on the other end is Rabbi Khadakov, the Rebbe's chief secretary. And he asks Rabbi Kotlarski, Moshe, did you wash your hands yet? Which was code that the Rebbe is on the line, on the other extension. So he washed his hands and he, he said, yes. And Rebbe Chadukov says, the Rebbe wants you to travel right now to Curacao. 
No questions asked. That's it. Okay, we're going to Curacao. Uh, and this was before Expedia, before Orbitz. You don't just go online and make a ticket. He had to call the travel agent who lived in Queens to drive to his office in Manhattan, print out tickets. Remember the old days with print out tickets, carbon copies, carbon paper? And they sent the tickets by courier to 770. Rabbi also told Rabbi Kalarski, bring a bacher, bring one of the bachem from 770. So he went into the, the hall where the yeshiva students were studying. He grabbed the bacher, he grabbed uh, Levi Krinsky, who's now a shlich in New Hampshire. And the two of them set out to Curacao, not knowing anything other than the fact that Rebbe said, go now to Curacao. And the Rebbe's calling at 3 in the morning, or having his chief secretary call at 3 in the morning. You don't wait. You, you go. So they went. Now they get to the island. They're not sure what they're looking for. So Rebbe Kalarski asks the cab driver, take me to the synagogue. Now I mentioned to you earlier, Curacao has a historical synagogue. It's called the Mikveh Israel Manual Synagogue. And I told you it was built in the 1600s. And every cab driver on that island knows about that synagogue. And will take you there. If you say, bring me to the synagogue, that is the synagogue. Every cab driver on the island knows that except for the one who picked up Rabbi Kotlarski. And he took him to some, I have no idea how he even knew it was there, some small little neighborhood shtibel, like a little neighborhood shul. And they're walking in, and a man is walking out, and Rabbi Kalarski says to this man who's walking out from the shul, we were sent here from the Labavitcher Rebbe. And the man nearly can, cannot, cannot stand any longer. He says, then you were sent here for me. And they say, oh, great, then tell us what it is. If you were sent for you, then what is it you need help with? He said, my son, my 14-year-old son, he doesn't have a school to go to. He doesn't want to be bullied for being Jewish. So then they knew why they were sent. Very clear. Okay, that didn't take very long to clear up. So they met with the boy. And here you see the, 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 the wisdom that Rebbe said to bring the yeshiva student, because at first... The 14-year-old didn't know if he should trust this old rabbi. By the way, the old rabbi in the story was in his 30s. But he, he, he hit it off at first with the younger kid, with the, with the yeshiva bachar. And then when he got his trust, then he started talking to the older rabbi. And then he, he liked it because when he asked the older rabbi about, are you allowed to defend yourself? Because he thought Jews were not even allowed to defend themselves. And uh, the older rabbi, Rabbi Kalarski, said to him, for sure you can defend yourself. And in fact, if they come to mess with you, you hit them so hard, they never come back to you. And, oh, you're cool. You, you like that. So they said to him, listen, why do you have to be here? This is, this is not a life for you. You want to come to a Jewish camp? And they signed him up for a Jewish camp to Gan Yisrael in, in Parksville, upstate New York. And then they started him in, in Yeshiva, in Chanech Lenar, in, in, in Crown Heights. And uh, that was the story. And the father obviously was, was so grateful, so grateful. Like I said, when you're going through... Your own tzadus, that's one thing. When you're going through your child's tzadus, that's incomparable. But also, the flip side of that is, when you know your child has been taken care of, when you know your child's in a good place, you know how grateful you feel. You can imagine the grateful father and his... his he, you can't describe the feelings of a grateful father. And with that feeling, he, he wrote a letter to the Rebbe of thanks. And he, and he said, thank you for remembering a small Jew from a small island called Curacao.
And he sent the letter in. And uh, he got an answer from the Rebbe. The answer was uh, in English. The Rebbe would generally answer people in the language that they wrote him in. And I just want to read to you part of the, the answer. Mr. Chaim Yosef Graysman, P.O. Box 2073, Breederstraat 74, Curacao, Netherlands, Antilles, greeting and blessing. I was pleased to receive your regards through our esteemed mutual friends. I must, however, take exception. Now that's scary. Lubavitcher Rebbe is taking exception with something that you wrote. That's very scary to be on the end of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's criticism. I must, however, take exception to your referring to yourself as, quote, a small Jew from Curacao. There is surely no need to emphasize to you at length that every Jew, man or woman, has a nefesh alakis, that means godly soul, which is a, quote, part of God above, as explained in the Tanya beginning of chapter 2. Thus, there is no such thing as a small Jew, and a Jew must never underestimate his or her tremendous, underlying the word tremendous, potential. So here's this father full of gratitude. Thank you, you saved my son. You remembered a small Jew from a small island called Curacao. And the Rebbe won't let it slide. No, I will not allow you to call yourself small. You are not small. You are a Jew and you are infinite because you have a godly soul and you don't know the limits of your potential. You are way, way bigger than you think. Don't you ever call yourself small. I always loved this story and the letter that have his response. And I never met Chaim Yosef Graceman, but when he passed away, I wrote a sermon about this story. And I, I sent it out in hundreds of shluchim all over the world, told that story, that Shabbos, the Shabbos of his Shiva. That was, uh, I don't know, seven years ago, I think. So I loved this story for a long time, and then it took on very personal relevance to me because... Uh, three months ago, Tamas to uh, of of to L L to Tisha. Three months, yeah. Three months ago, my son Yisrael got engaged to Malki Grossman or Malka Bela. Malka Bela is the granddaughter of Chaim Yosef Grossman. Her name. Bela is actually, she's named after Bobby Bela, the grandmother who appeared in the dream. And she's the daughter of the 14-year-old boy in the story, who's actually my mechutin who's sitting back there. And since he hasn't interrupted yet, I must be telling the story correctly, Baruch Hashem. And I find out, I come to find out, that 40 years ago, when the Rebbe woke up Moshe Kalarski in the middle of the night to do a miracle, that... It wasn't just something for me to be inspired by. It was something, something for me to be grateful for, too. That the Rebbe was doing a miracle for me, too. Sending a shidduch to my child. 
So I told this story, Gimel Thomas. We had a Fabreng in here, Chabad of the Five Towns, in the big tent out and back, and uh, they had just gotten engaged, Rishchidish Thomas. So Gimel Thomas is the Rebbe's yard site. I, I, th I thought, what greater tribute could there be to the Rebbe than to try to explain to people who the Rebbe is through this story. And, and, and I told the story, the whole story, just like I just told you. And I said, the Rebbe did a miracle for me 40 years ago, and I didn't even know it until, until now. But the point of the story, the point of the miracle, is that when the Rebbe does a miracle, that we have to internalize the message. And the message is, you are worthy of my miracle because you are infinite. You are way too important for me to overlook. You think you're small? You're not small. You're not a small Jew. There's no such thing as a small Jew. You are massive. And of course I turn over worlds for you because you are the world. And that's the message. The message is the way the Lubavitcher Rebbe looks at each and every one of us as having unlimited potential and will not let us get away with underselling ourselves. He will not allow us to call ourselves small. And therefore, yeah, if the Rebbe has to do a miracle, he'll do a miracle. But the main point is not the miracle. The main point is the message. Don't forget how incredible you are and that you have tremendous, underline the word tremendous, potential. And so I said, Gimel Thomas at the Fabrengen, at the tent in back of Chabad of the Five Towns. I said, therefore, when you realize how much the Rebbe believes in you, it is only proper and fitting to stand up and act that great, act like the big Jew that the Rebbe insists that you are. And therefore, if you think that something's beyond you and you can't do it, I got news for you. The Lubavitcher Rebbe thinks you can. And you tell me whose opinion of you is more correct. So that was the, the punchline. And I finished speaking. And I walked to the little platform. I walked down from the platform. And I see, sitting 10 feet away from me, my then future daughter-in-law, Malki. And I walked over to her. And I said, Malki, I want you to know that our family is incredibly grateful for the miracles that it took to get you here. I mean, think about that whole crazy story. Uh, the Rebbe's waking up Moshe Kalarski three in the morning, go, go save this family, and uh, one shudders to think. But it's, it's a miracle. It's a, it's a living miracle. And I, and I said, we're so grateful. We're so grateful. And Malki told me, and I've asked her since if I'm allowed to share this publicly, and, and she gave me permission, because I told her, in my opinion, this is the Lubavitcher Rebbe's real miracle. It's not the dream. It's not the three in the morning phone call. To me, this is the real miracle. This right here. This right here, what I'm about to tell you, that happened in the tent in back of Chabad of the Five Towns on Gimel Tammuz on the Rebbe's yard site this year, just a couple months ago. I said to Malki, we're so grateful for the miracles that got you to us. And she said, I know, and I heard what you said, that if the Rebbe thinks that we're great, we have to act great. And we have to do things that we thought we couldn't do. So she says to me, 
when I was walking into the event tonight, Hadassah Gazinski came over to me and said, Malki, I need you to be the head counselor for the preschool bunk. And Malki said, eh, I'll get back to you. Because <laughs> she didn't really feel like she had what it takes to do it. She said, I heard you speak. I heard the message. And as soon as you finished speaking, I turned to Hadassah and I said, sign me up. And that's how she spent the summer of her engagement. Everyone knows what a kala has to do. And it's, it was only a couple of months of an engagement and everything she had to do to prepare materially and spiritually. And she spent it being a counselor of little kids in the Rebbe's camp at a Chabad house in Long Island. And to me, that is the real miracle of the Rebbe. That the Rebbe sees in us what we are going to do for others. And he sees in us things that we're afraid to do that we can't imagine ourselves doing. But he sees them and acts accordingly. And all we have to do is just believe him when he says there's no small Jew. And then try to act like a little bit. And do that thing that you're scared to do, whether it's being a counselor in a camp or, or taking on a mitzvah that you know you need to take on or it's learning uh, an, an extra class every week of, of Torah study or it's learning an extra hour a day or whatever it is, whatever level that you're on. But you're great. You're infinite. Act like it. And if you don't see it yourself, know that the Lubavitcher Rebbe sees it in you. And in case the terms in which I'm speaking are too ambiguous, let me just spell it out in actionable words. Do yourself a favor. Meet yourself in the teachings of the Rebbe. You can go online and you can learn the Rebbe's teachings. Even if you don't read Hebrew or Yiddish, there's plenty of beautiful translations in English. You can watch classes online. You can go to soulwords.org. <laughs> There are plenty of ways of learning the Rebbe's teachings. And I promise you one thing. If you will learn the Rebbe's teachings, it will totally revolutionize your perception of the Jewish people, specifically of yourself. It'll change what you think of yourself. When you understand what a neshama is and why a neshama was sent to the world and, and, and how unique your neshama is and that no neshama ever had your mission before and never will have again. And how what you do is, is essential to the perfection of the universe. And that we're waiting for, for Mashiach. We're waiting for perfection. And when we need you to step up and be your greatest version of yourself in order for that to happen. That it's no mere luxury. Because if you were supposed to be the Nitziv and you ended up being a shoemaker, it's not just you who loses out. The world is waiting for you to step into your greatness. And if you don't have a clue how great you are, so start learning the Rebbe's Torah. At least on a weekly basis, learn a sikha on the Parsha. Whatever it is, it's whatever speaks to you, but learn the Lubavitcher Rebbe's Torah. One thing the Rebbe revolutionized is to explain in very clear terms how to view ourselves and take ourselves more seriously. The second thing I would tell you, and it's not second in importance, Perhaps in certain ways, it's even more important. And that is, and I know there's a camera here and I'm speaking to people uh, in, uh, watching on YouTube in Malaysia, but people here in this room tonight 
are in Cedarhurst, and we have the Oihel five miles away, the resting place of the Lubavitcher Rebbe five miles away. Imagine if you lived in the suburbs of Jerusalem and you didn't go to the Kotel, you didn't go to the Western Wall, you just didn't get around to it. That'd be a little weird, right? So here's what I'm telling you. We're 20 minutes late at night, 15 minutes when there's no traffic. From a place where you go there, you stand there, I can't guarantee you what you will see. What you'll see, what you'll see probably a, a gravestone, a marker, a monument, and you'll see a bunch of papers there people wrote and ripped up and, and left there. That's probably what you'll see. I can't guarantee you what you'll see, but I can guarantee you that you will be seen. You will be seen with the Rebbe's eyes, the way that the Rebbe looks at each and every one of us. And you're going to say, how's the Rebbe looking at me? I'm going to a, to a, to a grave site. When people walked in front of the Rebbe, the Rebbe gave dollars in his advanced age, in his late 80s, standing for hours. You know, I'm tired just from the standing we did on Rosh Hashanah, from the prayers. When the Rebbe would stand for hours until every last man, woman, child who wanted to meet him was able to do so. Some of those interactions were for a second. What was happening in that second? You know, we, we just had our first grandchild a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, we had a lot of simchas. It was, yeah, Baruch Hashem. The day that Yisrael Malki finished their Sheva brachas, so I flew to Cleveland. I thought the coast is clear. We had enough simchas for a while. I went to Cleveland for a Chai Elofabrengen, and I get texted by my wife that Tybal's having contractions. I said, she's not doing Tocheshvin. Well, you know, she's having contractions. And uh, I flew home, and the next day she gave birth. Baruch Hashem, you should know that the baby Esther is home now. Baby came home right after Rosh Hashanah. So, Baruch Hashem. So, I want to tell you something. I didn't see baby Esther in real life yet. Like, I, uh, she was in the hospital. Well, I saw her from like a hallway. They had her in the NICU and I kind of like, but, and now, now she's home, but I don't want to go over there because like, you hear my voice. I, if I have a cold, I don't want to be near her. So I haven't, but I've seen pictures. I've seen a lot of pictures. I want to tell you something. When you see a picture of your grandchild, how long does it take you to form an attachment? No time at all, because the, the attachment is already there. You know, a regular relationship is you, you say to somebody, you know what, let's go out for coffee, let's talk, let's see if we hit it off. But when you look at your child, you don't say, you know, grow up, learn how to say a few words, and let's have a conversation and see if it goes anywhere. You, your child is when you see your child and you say, this, this is the love of my life. I couldn't love you any more than I already do. And now I found out firsthand the same thing with a grandchild. You have a grandchild, and that's it. I love you completely with all my heart. In a fraction of a second, boom, I lay eyes on my child, my grandchild, and there's this essential bond. And I suppose the Rebbe was that way with every single Jew. And the Rebbe could look at you for a fraction of a second and be completely bonded. Now, there's no other explanation for something like that other than something metaphysical and otherworldly. It was a spiritual thing. I mean, it wasn't like a normal way of like, let's talk, let's, let's get to know each other. It was the tzaddik looking at you, scanning you, seeing 
your godliness and immediately connecting and bam, that's it. And it didn't take any time at all. So that wasn't a normal thing, even when the Rebbe was in a physical body. It was a totally spiritual, otherworldly, metaphysical thing. So how is it so different? Why should it be different if you go to the Rebbe's resting place? In fact, if anything, it's probably happening more powerfully because the Rebbe is not hindered by a physical body. So what, you, what you're going to see at the aisle, I don't know, but you will be seen. And I know it will be, I, I can't tell you the specifics of what the Rebbe will see in you, but I, one thing I know, because it's so predictable, because the Rebbe saw this in every single Jew, what will be seen in you is far more greatness than you are comfortable admitting. What will be seen in you is potential, not just beyond what you think you can achieve, but potential beyond what you are currently capable of imagining. And yet this is what the Rebbe sees in every one of us because the Rebbe insists there's no small Jew. So you want to do the teshuva, you want to become the real you, you want to be reinstated, you want to become your authentic, truest self, your soul. Okay, maybe you'll luck out, maybe something will happen, you'll overhear a conversation behind the door and you'll have a wake-up call. Or you could do something more reliable, something you could actually act upon. Go find out what the tzaddik thinks of you. And go present yourself before the tzaddik. And start believing in yourself. A little, a little bit. And I promise you that when that starts to happen, you're not going to have to change your behaviors one at a time. This is not like Western medicine treating symptoms. Oh, you have a headache, take this. Oh, then that causes another side effect, take this. This is holistic healing. This is, you go there, you're given a completely new perspective on yourself, which in turn means a completely new perspective on life itself because once you're changed, then everything that you're seeing has now changed. Your past has changed. Your greatest spiritual failings have changed. They've been now transformed into assets, propelling you to closer, cleaving to Hashem. There are many ways to do teshuva. There are many drachim, many paths. And there are many great teachers who will tell you how to affect these various paths. But I feel like it would be, on a personal level, I would be betraying my own potential if I knew this and I, and I didn't tell it to you tonight. And trust me when I tell you behind the scenes, I asked myself whether or not this room is ready for this talk. And in the end, I decided that if I would not share this with you, then that would be a failure on my part to live up to potential that I know about. Who's to say potential beyond what I'm even able to assess, meaning the ripple effects of sharing this information with you and how far that will go. Because we never know in Hashem's master plan how one thing leads to another. So that's why I'm sharing this with you. Get to know yourself. Form a deeper relationship with the tzaddik. Try the tzaddik's perception of you on for size. See if it feels different. See if you start automatically just being a little more sensitive, a little bit more courageous, a little more present, a little more authentic. You start making better choices. It starts to become easier to do the right thing. And if it doesn't work for you, you know, money back guarantee. You can go back to the way that you've been.
You can go back to your old self. But I have a feeling that if you trust me when I'm telling you now and you taste this and you get a glimpse of yourself and you know what that feels like for even a second to do something you are afraid to do, something that you were you felt ashamed even thinking that you were capable to do it. And you go out and you do that and you don't fail. And I, this could be a material pursuit. It could be a spiritual pursuit for a Jewish person. They're, they're, they're the same thing. It's all one thing. It's all about serving Hashem and being the greatest version of ourselves we can be. But I think that when you go out and you be more true to yourself and, and you live up a little bit closer to your greatness, once you see that, you will never want to turn your back on yourself ever again. You won't be able to. So I want to wish everybody, as the Rebbe would say, you should be completely sealed for good, for life, for all good things, for you and for your loved ones. And uh, stop selling yourself short. Remember your greatness. Go out there. Do something awesome. Do something great.